Hello, this is the 15th episode of Delving Into Academics. For those who don't know, it's where various researchers from biology, chemistry and physics are all interviewed about what they're currently working on and their lives as academics. For this episode, Professor Ken Rice was interviewed about his research into computational astrophysics, particularly focusing on planetary systems. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. So I am with Professor Ken Rice today and he's a professor of computational astrophysics. He started out doing a bachelor's of science at the University of Natal. He then carried on to do a PhD there as well with his dissertation title being Array Tracing Study of VLF Phenomena. He finished there at 1998 and then went on to become a postdoctorate fellow at the University of Natal and then on to Bartel Research Institute at the University of Delaware to also be a fellow there. He was then a research associate at the Bartel Research Institute and then went on to become a postdoctorate research associate of the University of St. Andrews and then a fellow there as well. He then did a year as an assistant professor at the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics at the University of California. And then he came to the University of Edinburgh, where he was a lecturer, then a reader, and he is now a professor there. Yep. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so why don't we get started with what you're researching currently? So, so currently I'm mainly focusing on sort of understanding planets around other stars, so exoplanets or extrasolar planets. So I do a combination of sort of theoretical work, trying to understand a little bit about sort of how they form maybe more interested in what happens when stars are very young so really just after they're formed and how do how do processes that operate when they're very young maybe influence the formation of planets because we sort of know that a lot of the planet building has to happen very quickly otherwise the planets wouldn't form in time so big gas giants like jupiter they must be pretty much ready to attract all the gas within a few million years because that's how long the gas around a sun-like star will last before it gets dispersed or accreted onto the star. And so lots of things must be happening when the star is very young. So I do some of that sort of work, which is mainly sort of computational modeling or theoretical work. But I've also got quite heavily involved in actually trying to sort of either find or characterize planets around other stars. So we're part of a team who can measure the reflex motion of a star as it's perturbed by an orbiting planet, and you can use that to then say something about the mass of the planet and its period and how far it is from the star. And if you also have those planets transit in front of the star, so they block some starlight, if they do that, they don't always do that. Then you get a radius and you have a mass, you can get a density, you can say something about internal composition. So I'm involved in that as well. So a bit of sort of actually trying to find and characterize planets, but also trying to do some theoretical work on, you know, how do they form or what, what, what processes when stars are very young influence the building blocks of planets. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing and so interesting. And so when you're looking at other planetary systems, what kind of things are you looking for when you're doing studies, say, on the formation of young stars? So so when, so from that side of things, youngsters, so one of the things we think, at, you know, the Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. And so mm -hmm. it has, if you look at it, well, we can't see the Milky Way, but you look at a galaxy similar to the Milky Way, you see those spiral arms. And, and we think that's an instability that's because the, the disk of the galaxy is massive enough to almost want to try to collapse in on itself, but because it's orbiting around the galaxy, it, it throws the material back out into these spirals. And we think that the same kind of physics probably operates in the disks around very young stars. The disk's massive compared to the mass of the, the central protostar, and it can start to sort of start up this gravitational instability and can, we think, produce these spiral density waves. And they, they can play a big role in trying to move mass through the disk onto the star. So they may play a big role in actually building the star. But if it becomes very unstable, the spiral waves can actually 
clump into maybe form planets themselves directly. Now we think that doesn't happen very often. Maybe some of the very big planets that are quite far from their stars, maybe they form that way. But we do wonder if maybe those spiral waves might actually help to collect the dust grains and the planet building material and help to, to at least build the building blocks of planet formation. Maybe not the planets themselves, but if you can collect all the material together and sort of get it into a reasonable size early on, then it can then continue growing to form the planets later on and in time before the gas disk disappears. So that's sort of the thing we're looking at. And then there's instruments like ALMA or, or the, 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 the sort of ALMA interferometer that can actually now observe quite high resolution, you know, observe these young stars at quite high resolution. So we're kind of interested in what 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 are the conditions that would allow ALMA to actually see this happening, if it is happening. So we're trying to understand, you know, could you actually see this and, and what would the characteristics of a system where you might see this be? So could you say, predict, okay, there's a, a very young star and its properties of this. So if you were to sort of focus on that one, you might start to see these kind of things going on. So we're trying to understand what would you see and could you see these processes actually taking place these days? So that's one of the things we try to understand there. Wow. <laughs> it's just so cool that you can now look at young stars yeah. forming in the galaxy and be able to infer lots of different yeah. information from that. So, so, I mean, in particular ALMA, which now, so it's, it's observing mainly in the submillimeter wavelength. So, you know, I think up to 1.5 millimeters and down to maybe half a millimeter sort of wavelength. And that's sort of the wavelength where you expect sort of millimeter-sized dust grains to be emitting a lot of radiation. And so it's got such high resolution, you can start to see structures in these disks around young stars. And, and virtually all of them have some kind of structure. We're not sure why. Could be that there's already planets there that are sculpting the disk. But we're also interested in maybe trying to probe even earlier stages, before, probably before the planets formed, and try to see how the structures in those disks might be influencing how the planets then get, get built. Yeah, that's so cool. So what kind of things have you found from your research so far? So at the moment, it's it's, it's still mainly theoretical. And, and a lot of the work is highlighting how difficult this is. So, so there are a couple of systems that people have observed that appear to have spiral waves in them. And certainly lots of the disks have some kind of structure. It's still not entirely clear what's causing this. You know, is, is this some kind of instability that's producing spirals? So hence the kind of thing we're interested in. Or is it just something went past and perturbed it and created a spiral-like feature that isn't actually something that's long-lived and, and didn't actually grow out of some instability? So, you know, there's observations that are, that, are, that are hinting at this, but we haven't yet really definitively seen something of a very young system that, that tells us that's actually happening. So, so we, we're trying to understand a bit better about whether you can see it and what, when is it most likely to see this kind of, process is taking place so we're still not sure so that's sort of why it's interesting we're still working on that yeah absolutely and like you said there could be different causes yeah. for this yeah. spiral gas disc yeah, that yeah. we don't know so how can you tell between it being what it, you think so, it is so for example one idea is if this is if the spirals are sort of internally generated so they just the disc is unstable and it forms spirals and you'd expect it to be symmetric but if, for example, they come from some passing star that perturbs the disk, you might expect it to be not symmetric because, of course, the, the star passes on one side, so it perturbs one side of the disk more than the other. So th there are some ideas as to how you might distinguish, say, a spiral that was triggered by, say, a passing star or maybe a planet inside the disk versus a spiral that grew out of some instability in the disk. So there's some ideas. We, haven't, we, we don't have enough observations to rule them out, but we do have some ideas about how you might tell whether this was a spiral from an instability that's been there for a while, a bit like in a, in, a, in a disk galaxy, or is it just something that got triggered by some passing star or maybe a planet in the disk? So, so we're not sure, but we think we have some ideas of how you might tell the difference. Yeah, it's kind of exciting that it seems so current and it's still yeah. kind of developing in its yeah. early stages. Oh, so yeah, so these kind of observations that can see at this kind of level of detail have only really happened in the last couple of years so so it is very current and there's a lot of interest in trying to because you are probing you're trying to probe earlier and earlier in the star formation process to try and see you know ideally you'd like to maybe almost almost try to see some planet forming which is possible but quite difficult but that's that's the idea is to get really early and start to see processes that are probably involved in both 
feeding the star, because of course the star has to grow, but also involved in building the material that then forms planets later on. So there's a whole lot of interest in terms of some fairly fundamental questions about how, how do stars form, but how do planets form? So they're both related to each other, we think. Yeah, that's so cool. From the way that it's been developing quite quickly in recent mm. years, where do you think it's going to go in the future? Do you think it's going to be developing at the same pace? Do you think we might uh, actually be able to see planets forming? I mean, it takes a long time, so we might not be able to see them. Yeah, I, I think so. Of course, you, you, you're right. You only see a snapshot. So you, you, you can't see a planet actually growing in a disk because we can only see it for a short amount of time. And, and we, we can't observe something for hundreds of years to watch it grow. But you can look at lots of systems. ALMA is probably the system that's the most exciting at the moment. So it'll just keep collecting data and, and get, you know, get more and more information. There are other projects aimed at trying to see, you know, these disks at fairly high resolution and high sensitivity. So I, I suspect we're not going to see another big leap at the moment. I don't think there's anything planned that would get much better. But I suspect over time we may see something like that. But for the moment, I suspect we're just going to see more and more observations as they probe different star-forming regions. And we'll hopefully start to build up a picture of what's actually going on. So I, th I think that's, yeah, that's what I would guess, is we'll just keep, keep collecting data and, and trying to see, as we look at more and more systems, hopefully we will start to see some kind of something emerging that we can then understand with the theory that we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And that is kind of the goal of the telescopes that we send yeah, up, yeah. the ones that we use on Earth is to probe more. Of yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we want to just yeah, especially when you're doing something like this, where you, I mean, especially star formation, you look at because star, you know, for a sun-like star, okay, it takes about 50 million years to end up as a proper star with nuclear fusion in its core, but a lot of the the building of it happens fairly quickly, like within a few million years, right? So when you're looking at star-forming clouds, you, you're looking at either multiple clouds, each of which are a different age, or you're looking within a cloud, there's a bit of a spread in age. So you're never quite sure at exactly what phase it's, because it all changes fairly quickly. So you really want to get into the very young systems, but that's really quite hard because they're still quite heavily embedded in their, in their gas clouds. And you go a bit older, but it's changed quite a lot. Even if you go maybe a million years older, the, the system has changed quite a lot. So you, you can't always say, well, we know a lot about the very early stage by looking at the slightly later stage, because actually, they evolve quite quickly. So you just want to get, try to get, I'm not explaining this very well, but you want to try to probe as, as early as you can, but there's a limited number of targets and, and a limited amount of time and all the observations take time. So so over time, we'll build up a, bit, a bigger and bigger picture, I think, of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, like there'll be loads of different stars that are at different stages. Yes, so hopefully yeah, we can yeah. make loads of observations of them. That, that also helps a lot. If you look at different stages, you can see patterns emerging. And this is how they evolve. But you need a decent sample at each stage to try and you know see what's the typical at this age and what's the typical at that age and try to build up a picture. Because even within each age, there's variability. You know, they're not all exactly yeah. the same. They're not all the same type of star. They don't have the same mass. They didn't form in the same. You know, so so there's, there's patterns, but there's not exactly the same for every single one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. and that sounds quite fascinating for me that each one's different because it makes it kind of, I guess, a bit more of a challenge. <laughs> but, uh, so, so I mean, the big picture is fairly robust. You know, you've got a big cloud of gas yeah. and dust. It starts collapsing. It's rotating. So you start to form a protostar, but then the conservation of angular momentum means that a lot of the material falls into a disk. That kind of picture is fairly robust. But of course, you know, how big is the disk? How massive is the disk? You know, what what's the mass of the star in the center? things like what was the metal content of the cloud is it metal rich more than the sun is it metal poor compared to the sun is it the same as the sun that can influence you know how it heats up and cools down you know is it a very dynamically violent are there lots of stars forming in the same region in which case they're interacting and knocking each other around and dispersing stuff or is it quite quiet in which case they sort of form an isolation so there's a whole variety of things that can influence precisely what happens even though I think we have a reasonably good idea of the basic picture, but the details for each system can differ depending on the environment it's forming in and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, exactly. And that just seems quite interesting that all these different factors kind of come together yeah, yeah, to then yeah. build the star's life cycle. And so what intrigues you so much about studying these star formations? Uh, so I, I guess the, the thing that, Probably the thing that was motivating me initially was this idea of trying to link it to planet formation. So when I started doing this, which is now 
quite a long time ago actually, say 18 years ago or so. I mean, we just started finding planets around other stars. So the first sort of planet around a sun-like star, other than the sun, was 51 Pegasus B, which was 1995. So I started working on this maybe 2001. So we had a sample, but not a very big sample. And so, of course, there was a lot of interest in trying to, under, you know, we now knew there were planets around other stars, you know. We were starting to see observations of young stars with disks. And so there was this sort of understanding that you had this process which I guess we'd known about for a long time. And, the, you know, the standard solar system formation was always forming in a disk around the sun. But now you actually had planets around other stars. You actually had observations of disks around young stars. And so people were trying to think about, you know, how do these planets form? And then early on, there was this problem that when you, say, did a basic calculation of, say, how long it would take to form Jupiter, people say, well, maybe eight, nine, ten million years. And then people said, but hold on, when we look in star-forming clouds, the gas is gone within five million years. So how do you form Jupiter if the gas goes away faster than the planet can form, right? And so then lots of people said, well, okay, but maybe something is happening to speed this up. You know, maybe there's an instability or something. And that's what got me into thinking about this. And a lot of people say, well, maybe the planets, rather than forming from the bottom up, where they dust grains collide and grow, and then eventually you have a, like an Earth-type planet, and then if it gets big enough, it catches onto the gravitation, onto the gas, and you form form your Jupiter or your Saturn, maybe they form directly, maybe they form like stars, maybe the disk material just collapses gravitationally and you form these gas giants. And an awful lot of what I've done is basically to say no, that doesn't work. But th there was that interest at the time about if, if the standard process appears to take longer than the lifetime of the disk, then something else must be happening. And so, you know, I worked on that for, well, I still work on that, but, you know, a lot of the stuff has said, actually, this doesn't really work, but other processes have sped up the planet formation process. We don't think it's as much of a problem to form Jupiter quickly, but clearly a lot of things are happening very early on. So it's still interesting to keep looking at that very early stage of star formation to try and see, you know, what, what's going on here that allows a planet like Jupiter to form so quickly, you know, because the Earth doesn't have to form that quickly because it, it doesn't have a lot of gas it can be forming from the remnants, you know, much more slowly. But it's something like Jupiter or Saturn, we're fairly confident has to form pretty quickly, because if it doesn't, there's not enough gas left in the disk to form the envelope, right, to form the atmosphere of the planet. So so there's still that interest in, say, trying to understand what, what processes that happen around very, very young stars are aiding the formation of planets. And I guess it's partly motivated by the fact that we now have so many planets around other stars. We know they're almost ubiquitous, right? There's planets around virtually every other star out there. Planets of one kind or another, right? So not all gas giants, but still gas giants are still quite common. You know, maybe 15, 20% of all stars have, have a Jupiter-like planet around them. So it's not like forming Jupiter is rare. It happens very common, commonly. So, you know, it's useful to understand what process is helping these big planets to form fairly quickly. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. It's kind of exciting, almost like a problem to be solved. It it is still, and there's still a lot of there's still a number of. So we know that when you form a, a disk around a star, there's lots of small dust grains, and the question is how do you get those small dust grains into big boulders? And there's a number of of problems. One is when they get relatively big. When they hit each other, they should just fragment and break apart, right? So, so what is allowing them to stick together, right? That's one question. Nobody quite knows that. The other problem is that when they're in the gas disk, they should be undergoing a sort of inward drift from aerodynamic drag, and that can get very fast. So how do you stop all these things from just drifting into the star? So there's still a number of things that people don't fully understand. Is, is, you know, we know that you must be able to turn the small dust grains into big objects because we're here and there's lots of planets. Yeah. We're not entirely sure of what allows them to get through those hurdles where you think, you know, they should collide and break apart or they should be spiraling inwards very fast, but they're not. We're not quite sure what, you know, you could just say, well, we know it works, but we'd like to understand, you know, what's allowing these things to grow so efficiently in these disks. And that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting is, is how do you explain where the physics is saying something like, well, this should be difficult, and yet the observations are saying, actually, it should be quite easy because there are all these planets out there. So yeah. that's kind of the interest. It's interesting to see the uh, reasoning behind it, and that's kind of almost what drives physics, because as you yep. say, like we know it works because we yes. are here, yes. but it's we want to know why yeah, and exactly. how yeah, yeah, yeah. and the reasoning behind it. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's, somebody said to me this other day, you know, a lot of the time people are happy with something works. 
But as physicists, we often want to say, well, well why does it work? Because it, yeah, it works, and that's maybe good enough in some cases. But if you really want to understand the world around us, then you've got to do better than just it works. You've got to say, okay, let's try to work out why it works. You know, what, what, what's allowing it to work? What, what are the underlying processes? What, what physics is taking place? And that's sort of the same kind of thing. You know, we, we know that planets form, lots of them. We'd like to understand the processes involved in that, just so that we can feel as though we understand the whole, you know, the whole sort of planet formation process, and not just saying, well, okay, it it works. Something deeper than just that. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you mentioned that you are part of a team that finds yeah, yeah. exoplanets or yeah. planets from other star systems. So has finding these other planets helped with understanding um, how planets form? So why? Yeah, so a lot of what we've been doing, if you know there's the NASA Kepler satellite that they just stopped using and there's there's a new one they've just launched. So it was very successful at finding planets that transit, you know, the ones that pass in front of the star. And so they dip block a bit of light and then you can measure if you know the size of the star, you can get the size of the planet and hence you can get the radius of the planet. And of course, not all planets transit because it depends on the alignment. But it, but you know, if they, they looked at about 150,000 stars and they found about 2,000 planets. Now there's many more planets around those stars, but they found the ones that transit, like the ones that happen to pass between us and the, and the parent star. And what we did a lot of the time, not only this, but we would just follow those up. We'd stare at the same star. And if you can then measure how the star's moving in response to the planet, then you can then use that to get the mass. And so the transit method, which the satellite was using, gets the radius because it looks at the, the change in brightness of the star. And then the sort of Doppler wobble method that we use, which is just to measure the change in velocity of the star, you can get the mass. And so from mass and radius, you can then get, say, uh, internal composition. You can tell if something's a rocky planet or whether it still has to have a lot of gas or whether it's a water world and things like that. And I guess it, it didn't. It hasn't played a big role in, say, trying to probe, you know, how they form in the early stages. But there are some interesting things that have come out. So, for example, there's a number of very small rocky planets that we found, and they're very Earth-like. If you put them on a composition curve, they look like they have the same composition as the Earth. But they're very close. So Kepler-78b, which is one of the first ones we reported on, it's, it's only like... 1.8 times the mass of the Earth, and it's only 20% bigger, so it's very much the same kind of size. It's like twice the mass, but it's still quite impressive that you can detect something that small. But it's got an orbital period of eight and a half hours, so it's very, very close. And the star's like the sun, so it's a hot star, and this planet's very, very close, so there's clearly no way that, that it could be habitable, right? There's not a chance. But you can take these and you could do a simple thing and say, well, look, all these rocky planets close and we could extrapolate out and we can we can show how many we'd expect to find, say, at the same distance that the Earth is from the sun. Right. And if you did that, you'd get quite a lot, you know, maybe, you know, maybe 10 percent or 5 percent. So it's quite a lot. But then people notice that, hold on, if you go up in radius, you discover that, that predominantly all the planets that have radii less than one and a half times the radius of the Earth are rocky. But when you get above two Earth radius, they all still have big gas envelopes. They're still quite gaseous. They're a bit like Neptune or something, small Neptune. And so the question was, well, why is that, right? And, and the solution seems to be that what's happening is that if you have a, a, a small sort of Neptune-like planet very close to its star, the star will strip the atmosphere off. And what you're left behind is this rocky object, right? The, the, the terrestrial light planet. And so it's distinctly possible that this population of rocky planets that we find close in is not actually the inner population of rocky planets that goes a long way out. It's the inner population of planets that were bigger earlier on. And so you have to be very careful of extrapolating those out because you're, you're not extrapolating the right population. So things like that. So people are very interested in, say, how many planets are probably in the habitable zone of a sun-like star, so where could you know where they could? I don't like the habitable zone very much because we don't really know what it is. But let's say a region where they could have liquid water, and of course you could just simplistically extrapolate the known population of very close and rocky planets out to those kind of distances. But if those are actually the a population that were once like Neptune or, or mini Neptunes rather than primordially rocky, 
then that's the wrong calculation to do. And so you then have to be very careful about how you do the extrapolation. So it's an interesting issue as to, you know, can you use the inner population to say something about habitable planets around these stars? And the answer is maybe not yet, because we don't really know where those rocky planets come from. And there's a strong indication that they probably weren't rocky originally. They've just become very heated by the central star and lost all their atmosphere. So there's things like that as to, you know, trying to understand, I guess I'm, I'm waffling a bit, but helping us understand, you know, how do planets form initially? Do they form rocky or which ones form rocky? Or So, for example, the most common type of planet we now find is what we call a super Earth. So planets that are about one and a half to two times the radius of the Earth are very common. So if you look at the occurrence rates, you've got, I forget the numbers exactly. So, you know, out of all the planets that we found, so we've got like 4,000 maybe 100 like Jupiter or 200 like Jupiter, maybe 100 like Saturn, and then it gets a bit harder to find them. And there's maybe a couple of hundred that are quite similar to the Earth, and then there's like hundreds that are just twice the size of the Earth. Not exactly twice, but in that region. So these super-Earths, which we think are planets that probably formed with a rocky-type core similar to the Earth, but with a, quite a, a dense atmosphere, a bit like Neptune, very common planets and so that's also surprising is you know they're not in our solar system we don't have any in our solar system but around other stars they appear to be the most common type of planet so it's things like that trying to understand what does that mean and, and you know what does it mean about planet formation and things like that so yeah that the sounds really interesting to then find out so much about these types of planets and kind of surprising results especially with super Earths. yeah so why do you think they are the most common type of planet out there? What are the current theories about why? I, I, it's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure that there's a good answer to that one yet because the, the standard picture was that your big planets that retain, say, atmospheres like Uranus and Neptune and Jupiter and Saturn, they formed a bit further out where the, the disk was cold enough that you collected ice onto the dust grain. So you actually had slightly more material out there and you'd form your big rocky core earlier and you in fact your rocky core would probably be a mixture of rocks and ices and stuff like that and then it gets massive enough quickly enough that you can then attract all the gas and you end up with a, a gas giant or an ice giant or whatever you want to call those planets with these ones if the inner rocky ones are the stripped cores of what were super earths at an earlier time well their composition is very like the earth which kind of tells you that they didn't form out there where it was icy because you're not seeing their composition being quite dominated by water. They very much have a composition that looks very like the Earth. So 30%, you know, dense iron and nickel and the rest magnesium silicate. So somehow we think that means they probably form closer in. But if they form closer in, they should take longer to form. So how did they then get the gas that was there that was then potentially stripped if they got very close to their star? And so there's quite a lot of debate about exactly what this means. And it's not it's not quite clear. It's maybe we've misunderstood planet formation a little bit. Maybe planets can form closer in than we thought and faster than we thought. Maybe the solar system is rare. You know, that's the other interesting question is, you know, is the solar system, because we have all the big gas giants further out and the rocky ones inside, we, we thought that was a nice picture. But maybe maybe that's just because it's what it had to be for us to be here to see it, right? So maybe maybe the solar system is an unusual configuration and that lots of other systems are very different. And so, but it does look as though these kind of, objects that are maybe twice the radius of the Earth and maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times the mass that still retain quite gaseous atmospheres, you know, the things we call super-Earths, are actually very common. So probably understanding them will help us to better understand planet formation. But I don't think there is a, a well-accepted idea yet as to exactly how they form, because it is a little bit surprising that things that you'd think should form further out are much closer in and appear to have cores that are actually properly rocky not not icy so so that's a little bit confusing but it's an interesting puzzle yeah it sounds so exciting all these puzzles and yeah. problems that are still left to be solved for yeah, yeah. future generations for current researchers yeah. that are part of it it is an amazing field in terms of how because i mean the first planet around another sun-like star was 1995 so what's that 20 is that right 25 years ago 24 years ago yeah. so it's remarkable how it's changed in a relatively short space of time and and you know our ability to find and characterize these planets is quite something now you know we can really can you know measure you know so for example when we're when we're looking for 
say a rocky trying to characterize a rocky planet around a sun-like star which say kepler 78b was a classic example it's very close in so of course the reflex motion of the star is bigger than if it was further out but even so the star is only moving away and towards us with the speed of about two meters a second so you can walk at that kind of pace right so yeah. maybe that's a little bit of a fast walk but but it's not very fast and so we are able to pick out that signal that's only a couple of meters per second in size around a star that's quite noisy and you know lots of other things but you can still extract that information whereas you know 20 years ago you were mainly looking for things where the star was moving at maybe 10 or 20 meters per second we've managed to get the instrumentation down to the point where you can actually see those kind of really small radial velocity mo motions of this central star in order to try to pick out the, the mass of the planet. So it's very impressive what's been able, what we've been able to do in the last 20 years or so, what the scientific community has been able to do. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And do you think that we'll be able to, or well, obviously there are hopes that we'll be able to develop this even further so we can yep. find even smaller radial velocity. Um, that's that's really hard. So, so if you wanted to find... So Jupiter around the sun induces a radial velocity in the sun of about 13 meters per second. So that's fairly easy, but it takes about 11 years to go around once. So you have to wait quite a long time to see that kind of signal. Now the Earth going around the sun obviously takes a year, but the radial velocity amplitude due to the Earth is about 10 centimeters per second. So it's really tiny. So that's very, so the, just the, the noise the stellar activity, all those kind of things that can influence, because you're basically looking at spectral features on the star. And they can be, so, you know, Doppler effect, spectra shifts, you've done this, I guess, spectra shifts back and forth. If something goes away from you, it moves to the red, it comes towards you to the blue. And so we're basically looking at, at lots and lots of spectral lines and trying to see a very tiny shift back and forth as the star's moving away and then back towards us and away and then back towards us. But of course, you can also get those, what appear to be shifts if the star's surface is noisy. So you have star spots or ejections or whatever's going on on the surface can make the spectral lines appear to be moving. And so that, that's a problem that you have to try to work out. And, and the kind of effective amplitude of that is about a meter or two meters per second. So if you just had a star with no planets around it, a bit like the sun, you'd probably expect to see radial velocity variations of a couple of meters per second. Now you put a Earth-like planet at one astronomical unit around that star, it's putting a 10 centimeter per second perturbation on that. And you've got to now pick that out of all this noise. And it's, there's a lot of work going into that to try to understand, can we characterize the sort of stellar activity accurately enough that we can then start to pick out these very small signals. And that's one of the reasons we've man managed to go down to maybe radial velocities of only a couple of meters per second, because we now have a better understanding of how the stellar activity influences the signal. But going down to 10 centimeters per second is quite difficult. The one saving grace may be that most of the stellar activity happens on a time scale of, say, 20 days or 30 days or something like that. Whereas if you're looking for a one-year signal, it's much longer. So you may be able to separate out the long period signal from the planet from the short. But still, it's still trying to find a, a signal that's only 10 or 20 centimeters per second when the noise from the star might be a couple of meters per second. Um, but there's a lot of work going into this. Um, with TESS, which is the latest NASA satellite, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which they launched last year, I think. That's going to do a lot of work with M-dwarfs. So M-dwarfs are stars that are less massive than the sun, and they're cooler. And so the region that we'll call the habitable zone, which I don't really like the term, but let's say the region where liquid water could exist on a planet is closer to the star. And so if you had an Earth-like planet orbiting that kind of star, not only is the star a lower mass, but the planet would be closer, so the effect on the star is much bigger. And so TESS will probably find quite a lot of rocky planets around M-dwarfs in a region where there could be liquid water on the surface. And because the motion of the star will be bigger because it's a lower mass and the planet's closer, we may be able to start measuring that one. So we may not be able to truly definitively find an Earth-like planet at 1 AU around a Sun-like star, but we may find Earth-like planets in what we'll call the habitable zone around lower mass stars quite soon, and then we'll be able to characterize those. And that becomes interesting because they, they, you know, potentially they could have liquid water, and if they have liquid water, then maybe there could be life on them. There, there are some 
caveats, of course, because a planet in the habitable zone of an M dwarf is a bit like the moon around the Earth. So it's synchronous, so it's tidally locked. So one side of that planet will always face the star and one side will always face away. So what happens to life on a planet where one side's always irradiated and one side's never irradiated? We don't know. And of course, the star's lower luminosity, it's fainter, it's cooler. And so the sort of typical wavelength of the light is going to be different to from the sun. So we don't know what's going to happen there, but it's a little interesting that we'll probably have a reasonable sample of rocky planets orbiting stars less massive than the sun in a region where liquid water could exist. We'll probably have that fairly soon. But whether we can actually say anything more than that, I don't know. Yeah, that sounds like a very exciting and kind of new time for discovering exoplanets and planetary systems. There's a lot of satellites and telescopes sure. now being launched and yeah. in coming years by both NASA and ESA. Yeah. What do you think will come out of all these telescopes? What do you hope so, will come? So I suspect the NASA one that launched last year, tests that, that will probably find a lot of rocky planets around these low mass stars. So mm-hmm. that'll increase the sample of those a lot. And we'll be able to follow up some of those with radio velocity measurements and get the math masses and the radii. So it says something about the composition. Yeah. JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, launches in 2021, we hope. And that will probably allow us to do some kind of spectroscopy on planets. Now, one way you can do that is just transit spectroscopy. You observe the spectrum of the star and you try to work out the difference between what it looks like when the planet is passing in front of it and going behind it. And that way, maybe say something about the spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. You can do phase curves, so you know as the planet goes around, if it's got no atmosphere, then basically it'll get hot on one side and very cold on the other side. But on the other hand, if it's got an atmosphere, then it'll spread that heat around it. And the sort of, if you then look at the apparent luminosity of the star, what you see when you combine the planet's radiation and the stars depends on how much of an atmosphere it has. So you can start to say something about whether planets have atmospheres. So, so we'll we'll start to say something about planet, or we've got a little bit about planetary atmospheres, but say more about planetary atmospheres, but still probably not something along the lines of you know what's what's the atmosphere like of a planet in the habitable zone around an dwarf. That's going to be tricky, but we'll start to be able to probe atmospheres a little bit more than we have before. And then Plato, which is the ESA mission, launches in 2025 or 2026, and that's going to look at lots and lots of stars. And the idea there is to try and find a true Earth analogue, so one Earth mass roughly at one astronomical unit around a Sun-like star. And that, so that's probably going to be... I don't think TESS will do that. There may be an outside chance that TESS will do it, but I don't think so. But Plato's plan will, will be to search enough stars for long enough to definitively find the transit of an Earth Earth analogue, a true Earth analogue. And then it begins very interesting because now you really are talking about something that's potentially really similar to the Earth. It's around the same kind of star, it's at the same distance, it's got the same mass, it's got the same radius. And then ideally now, of course, at that stage, we probably won't have the instruments that would allow us to properly probe such a planet's atmosphere, right? Because it's very difficult. But I suspect we would then put more effort into developing instruments that would allow us to then properly look at a planet like that and say, okay, can we get a spectrum from that planet? Can we say something about its atmosphere? Does it have water? Does it have oxygen? Does it have ozone? Does it have CO2, etc.? Does it have methane? And try to infer something about that. But I suspect that's quite a long time away. You know, so Plato's sort of mid to late 2020s, so we probably know about these planets in the late 2020s. Then we've got to think about building something that can actually properly observe such a planet. And so 20 years away. I've often said that I, I suspect nobody should believe any habitability claims for the next 20 years or something. I think people will probably make them. I'm not sure I'd believe them for a while because it's going to be so difficult to make these kind of observations. And we really don't know what a biosignature is definitively. Right? We don't know that if you see water in an atmosphere or oxygen or then it's definitively a biosignature there's lots of abiotic ways to do that as well so you've got to be very careful but i think you know 20 years time we may have the kind of observations where we can make stronger statements about something like that that's the hope i guess yeah and is one of your drives to keep discovering exoplanets then to also search uh, for life or habitability on other planets yeah so i think personally i i, I like just doing physics. I like the idea of trying to understand, say, how planets form, you know, and I like the challenge of trying to, you know, work with a team that tries to find them or characterize them or take the measurements. It's just fascinating. 
be able to do that and, and to try to think about, you know, what does this mean in terms of star formation and planet formation? So I'm, I'm personally, you know, more interested in just trying to use it as a way of, of doing physics, if you like. Of course, the, the, the long-term goal, the one that we probably have to strive for because it's the way that you capture the public's imagination is to is to talk about can we find something like the earth can we then probe something like the earth can we determine if something like the earth around a different star has life can we say something about the complexity of that life you know that's probably the long-term goal for the community because you know that's what that's what i think yeah, it's a fascinating question, and and of course you know people are, are rightly fascinated by the idea of whether or not you know there is life around another planet or life on another planet around a different star or even life in our own solar system, right? But then you know personally I like the the challenge of just trying to understand things, and planet formation and star formation and and doing doing physics rather than chasing after this habitable exoplanet, but. But I suspect that is kind of the way we will be doing things is because, and along the way, you know, we'll ideally be doing good physics and good science because that's why we do it. But at some level, we're, we're trying to get to the point where we can say something about another Earth-like planet around another star and, and what we can say about that. But, uh, you know, you have to bear in mind that we're physicists who are trying to understand things, not just chase after this one thing. But that is probably the way we will eventually go. I guess, yeah, you are right in that the main goal of maybe the public or the general public yeah. is life because I guess aliens really capture the public's yes, imagination. Yeah. But, I mean, you are right in saying that, well, physics, just doing it because you love physics, you enjoy the yeah. problem solving, the questions that come out of it and trying to think about them is... it's kind of nice to hear and yeah and, and, and I'm, I'm always worried that I, I, I'm, I'm insulting the public a bit but you know it's also nice that if you do find something interesting I mean we had one recently where the planet was extremely dense and suggested it must have had some kind of collision that knocked a lot of material off leaving the, the dense core behind you see and, and you know that got a lot of coverage so so you know even though I suspect ultimately that the, the bigger interest is in you know can we find life on another planet you know can we find an earth analog out there around a, a sun-like star the public is still interested when you find something interesting about a planet exoplanet or you know we found a multi-planet system or this particularly dense one or this particularly hot one or, or you know something whatever it, it's not as if the only thing the public's interested in is this one thing but you can tell that obviously you know what's keeping the public interested in the, the bigger topic is probably can we eventually find life on another planet around another star but it is nice that you work in a field where when, when something interesting happens you can you know put out a press release and, and there's quite a lot of interest in it because it's an, it's an interesting topic in itself even if you know the, the deep down the interest is maybe to do with life or something like that but yeah 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 and i know you've mentioned that you as i said you like the problem solving you like just the general interest in physics is that yeah. your favorite thing about being a researcher uh yeah so i mean i i m most of my time even all the way from studying i guess has been to just do things that i found interesting and i was lucky enough to be able to do that so so I've never had some kind of grand underlying research plan. I just like the idea of, of you know, here's interesting and challenging problems, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to work on some of them. And so, yes, it is it is that aspect that I like, is, is being able to get involved in something interesting and then try to understand it using using physics and using various other, other skill sets, I guess. So, yes, it, it is that sort of problem-solving side I, I like more than the idea of, yeah, it's the challenge of doing it, I think, I like more than, say, some end goal. I don't have some sort of plan to say I'm going to be the person who solves this puzzle. No, I'm just enjoying, you know, tackling interesting problems and trying to work out how to solve them rather than saying, you know, I'm going to find the first habitable exoplanet or something. That's not really the goal. I think I'm, I'm much more interested in just doing something challenging and interesting and trying to tackle interesting problems. Yeah, and... I think that's kind of why quite a few people maybe get into the subject yeah. in the first place because they like the sort of challenge it presents yeah. them that maybe they haven't found with other subjects or that they just feel entices them or yeah. creates that interest and drives them a bit more. I, think just, I mean, I think most recent, I mean, there's lots of interesting problems with, with 
sort of research career structures, but but mostly I think researchers are quite fortunate to be able to spend some of their time just thinking about something, or working through something. You know, it's it's hard to imagine another job where you can just spend hours at a time just trying to tackle this interesting problem. You know, nobody's breathing down your neck to deliver some specific thing at some specific time. You're just you know trying to solve something, and it's something you're interested in. And I think that that's it's amazing that we're able to do that kind of thing. And it's you know it's great when you you suddenly realize, ah, I know how to solve this, or you get it, or you fix the problem, or you get a solution. And, you know, it's just, it's just a great thing to be able to spend your time thinking about problems like this and trying to solve problems like this. It's, it's, there's not many jobs that let you do that, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's kind of, I guess, what interests me about yeah. research careers, because well, I'm like, oh, that kind of sounds real nice yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be doing in the future. And it's a privilege that kind of only researchers get almost sitting around and thinking about problems that really... I think that's true. I think there are some areas outside the more formal research where some of the skills are used. You know, certainly parts of the industrial sector needs people with data analysis skills and problem-solving skills and computational skills and all these kind of things. So I think there's probably lots of challenging jobs outside. Maybe maybe not many where you get the freedom to decide what problem you'll tackle, right? And you can just go, I'm going to work on... You know, that's one of the nice things about research is you do have a lot of freedom to say, you know, what what is the problem I'm going to work on? People aren't, you know, okay, maybe when you're still starting out, you're working with other people. But even then, a lot of, a lot of places want even early career people to develop some independence and to come up with their own questions, to tackle their own problems. And that's... That's maybe the bit that's slightly more unique because there's maybe plenty of places where you'd have to write code or deal with data sets or develop data analysis techniques and it's challenging and it's interesting, but you, maybe it's a bit more structured than, say, in, in a research environment where you can often have your own freedom to decide which problem you'd like to tackle and, and you know how you're going to tackle it and how you're going to do that. And it's, it's very nice to have that kind of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And as you've said, or we've kind of discussed, you work as part of a team as well for yeah. some of your research projects. How do you like working in a team? Like, how is it different yeah. to then working as an individual? So, so, yeah, so it's interesting. Cause, yeah, because I, 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 it's fairly new to me. So for a long time, I, I just worked, you know, with people. I, you know, run my own research, either with students or postdocs, or maybe a collaborator or something. And it was very small and you know, you, you had your own time scale and you could do your own thing and, and, and you just kind of would talk to somebody and say, oh, it's an interesting problem, let's, let's work on that and then have a go. So working in the team is slightly different in a way because, of course, it's a bit more structured and there's a bit more planning and thinking about exactly what, what, what we'll do. It's still, I'm quite fortunate in many respects because this team is not that big. And so the way they tend to work is say, okay, here's an interesting target that we're going to, we're going to you know, observe who would like to look at this one and so people will go you know I'll, I'll do that one and then they have quite a lot of freedom to decide how to tackle it and of course they will send around drafts or send around and people might respond and say, actually no you should probably do that instead and they get lots of advice but but they can run it relatively independently and when they need something from another member of the team they can say okay can anybody do this for me and then that person does it and they collaborate in that way so it's still fairly fairly nicely done it's not it's not very structured in that sense even though there's a lot of expertise so of course you know if you don't know how to do something you contact somebody else and they either do it for you or they say I know you do this and that and that so you get a lot of advice from people but once you're sort of looking after a particular target then then you get to set some of the parameters the time scale when do you think you'll finish how long will it take how many more observations should they do you know when should they do their observations and stuff like that so so you do get a fair amount of independence even though it's part of a team so it's quite a nice team to work with yeah, that sounds really nice. Because I've also taught with Professor Victoria Martin. Yeah. She works as part of a very yeah, big yeah, yeah. team yes. working with CERN. Yeah. And she's also said she loves the collaboration, the fact yeah. that it's a really big team. Mm. But it's nice to have a bit of a working with a smaller team's yeah, 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 perspective yeah. as well. Cause yeah. There's differences in some people prefer yeah. others. And yeah, and it, it, it is. And, and I mean, certainly my experience with this team is it's quite, it's quite good at looking after students. So if the student's working on something, then they protect them and they make sure nobody else works on it. And 
if there's students who need work, then they try to find a project for them to work on. Say, okay, you need something for your thesis, then why don't you take over that one? And or maybe the reverse, actually, you need to focus on that one, so we'll take something away from you, so that you're not, so you can actually finish that one and write it in your thesis. So they're quite careful about, you know, look, making sure that the, you know, early career people are are, are given things to do that they can then you know, work on, it's, you know, very collaborative, very supportive, and it's, it's nice to work in a, in a team like that. Yeah. yeah, and it sounds like a really nice team to kind of start out yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very good. Yeah, quite students. a few uh, early career people have been in our team and done very well, because, yeah, because we try to make sure that they get interesting projects to work on, that they can lead and they can, you know, take take sort of some charge of it. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah, and it's absolutely almost necessary to build up those skills yeah, from the yeah, go exactly, so that yeah. they can go on and become yeah. successful like you said and, and sometimes the the i mean the, the the techniques are changing quite fast at the moment and so often you end up with the early career people being the ones who understand them best and so you know because they're the ones who work on them you know you might the more senior people might know something about what the kind of idea of what needs to be done but it'll be the early career people who are actually getting into the, the nitty-gritty of doing that and so they then become the experts in something, which is nice to see as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I guess that's how it then progresses. Yeah, to exactly. Yeah, yeah, more that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant to see sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, speaking about students and early careers, what kind of advice do you have for undergraduates that are currently going through physics degree or just in general a degree and maybe a bit clueless? Maybe they want to go into research. Yeah. So, what kind of advice do you have? It, it's difficult in a way because certainly long term the whole sort of academic research career is, is very tough because you know there's a lot of there's a limited number of jobs at the end and there's quite a lot of people you know at the beginning and so there's it's, it's quite challenging so my own I don't know I don't like giving advice because I always think everyone's different but my own experience was to just do what seemed interesting and worthwhile at every step and so you know, I finished a degree and had the chance to do a PhD and thought, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then finished a PhD and then had an opportunity to do a postdoc and thought, okay, I can do that. And But it wasn't sort of planned. It's only maybe later on where I went, okay, I, I really need to think about this now. You know, it's, it's, I've got to start planning something. But initially it was kind of just interesting and I got to, you know, work in different places, work with different groups. I changed topics a little bit and everything was just done on the basis of, you know, this looks like an interesting, worthwhile thing to be doing for a while and go from there. And you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I can still do it, but I, you know, it is a it is a challenging kind of career path. On the other hand, the 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 overall skill sets are incredibly valuable. So you know, there are lots of options for people. So it's not like you know, you you get to some point and, and everything ends. No, you just get to some point and something. You know, you go and do something new, and it's many cases can be just as challenging and it's interesting. But I think it's worth. It's worth being aware that, that you know, that the, the whole long-term research career structure is quite, you know, difficult and, and there's a, a lot of very good people who will be looking for jobs and funding and research fellowships and, you know, lots of very good people don't get them, unfortunately, and, and that's always quite difficult. But there are things you can do. It, it depends on, you know, I was trying to think of how to say this because I think the community is trying to think harder and harder about how you deal with people who might not be as flexible so like if, if you're very if you have the ability to go anywhere then often you can get a job if you're willing to go to germany or america or australia or brazil or whatever south africa holland you know there's lots of options if you if you're able to do that, but not everyone is and so it seems unreasonable that you know that you, you the way to build the career is if you're willing to travel the world right so so that's probably still true. I think the academic community is trying to think a bit harder about whether that's, you know, how do you take into account the fact that some people can't just go off and, you know, work in another country. They may have some responsibility here that means that they're slightly constrained. I'm not sure we've solved that problem yet, but people are thinking a bit more about it. But but on the other hand, it's, it's, it is great. And, and if you are, you know, if you enjoy the research and, and you know, then... I think as long as you're enjoying it, that's maybe the first step towards, you know, doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, I mean, I've said it before when I've been recording these episodes. That's one thing that I really try to promote to people whenever they're kind of thinking about the future 
is just do what you enjoy at that yeah, moment yeah, and yeah. it'll kind of fall into place as you've said yeah. your career has kind of gone like you're just yeah. kind of going along with it almost yeah. not really having a plan but because you found it interesting you kind of yeah. just continued on with it which is something that I really advocate to yeah, my friends. I, I think the one thing I like, did do which, which I still think is quite useful is, is there's nothing worse than coming to the end of a, a research contract and not knowing what's coming up and so something I did try to do was to have the next stage in place well in yeah. advance. You don't want to be like one month away from the end of the contract and then go, what do I do now? Yeah. So it's a bit annoying because you end up applying for jobs or applying for fellowships maybe two-thirds of the way through something that you're enjoying until you're thinking, well, I'm here, I'm applying for something new and I'm still enjoying doing this one. But it's kind of worth doing because you don't want to be waiting until the very last minute and then going, oh, I don't have anything to do now. Yeah. And of course, it gives you the other thing. If you don't get something, then you know that, that you're going to have to make a decision at the end. You know, because you, you want, well, not you want, I always thought I need some I need some idea of where I'm, what's going to happen next. I didn't mind what it was terribly. But, you know, you want that ability to say, okay, you know, I've, I've managed to get another position or a fellowship, so therefore I'm okay for another few years. And then, you know, yeah. so, so it's worth thinking about planning a little bit, even if you're enjoying what you're doing, being aware of, you know, what what's the next stage going to do? I think that's worth thinking about. But you know, that's was well, just me. I guess that's what I did. Yeah, no, that's brilliant advice because I feel like everyone should also have that plan. Like, yeah, was yeah. I do say, maybe go with the flow and just yeah. do whatever you enjoy. Maybe have a bit of a plan. Maybe yeah, exactly. as an yeah, undergraduate, yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I have three more years yeah, of yeah, a degree. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. But even as yeah, an undergraduate, as you can think about, you know, what research projects you're going to do. And you know, I, I worked with one, did a, did an undergraduate project with me one year, and then he did something completely different the next year. And then he did a PhD with me afterwards, right? So, and he said I wanted to try something different in that fifth year, and that was a useful thing to do, right? Because he, yeah. he enjoyed it, but then he came back and worked with me again, and and so. So you can do that. You get the if you're doing a master's, what you get two research projects you can look at. You know, so, yeah. so you can start thinking even then. You don't have to be too sort of rigid about it, but you can think, okay, you know, what, what am I interested in theory or am I interested in computer modeling or, or interested in data analysis or, you know, whatever it is. And you can always try both if you want to. You say, well, I'm not so sure. I'll, I'll try this one and see how it goes. And so the research projects in your undergraduate give you some ability to probe different things and see what it is you like and then go from there. So I think that's worth... So even then, you're not... You're not really planning something, but you are kind of thinking about, you know, what you know, what sort of project do I think I might like, and hence I'll I will try to do a project in that area. It's not it's not a bad thing to do, and it's quite useful to get give yourself some idea of what what sort of things you enjoy doing. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely great advice to kind of, especially as an undergraduate, maybe just start thinking about what you might enjoy and then yeah. kind of try it out. Exactly, yeah, yeah. your yeah, research project. Right. Yeah. yeah, so. The final question that I have for you is an inspirational book slash article. Oh, I mean, for listeners, before this podcast kind of started recording, we were discussing it. And so have you been able to... I still of? haven't come up with a good one that I can think of. What, what, have, I, what have I found inspirational? There must be something out there because I can't have done this all by myself. But I, I can't... Nothing is springing to mind. And now that you've mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's the only one that I can think of, which is probably I can't choose that one as well as somebody else. I don't know. I read a lot of sort of science-y type stuff when I was, you know, an undergraduate and, and things like that. And I think I had sort of this interest in sort of slightly esoteric physics, which I never quite really went into more standard physics. But, you know, I, I enjoyed reading the sort of popular science books at the time, but... I can't think of one that really sort of absolutely resonated with me because probably because I've just got a lousy memory. So, <laughs> so I'm not helping you very much, I'm afraid. So. No, it's absolutely I mean, popular science books, there's so many out yeah, there yeah, nowadays. Yeah, like, there are. Literally go to a bookstore yeah, and exactly, yeah, pick one yeah, up. Yeah, and yeah. I've read quite a few that have yes. maybe decided whether I enjoy the subject or not yeah, as well, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. and maybe branch out into different areas of physics. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Popular science books is still a brilliant suggestion. Thank you for coming on the podcast, yeah. and thank you for giving us your time yeah, today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's very, very, very enjoyable.
So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Delving Into Academics and I hope you found it interesting. Please like, review, comment and subscribe wherever you're listening to this and if you want to find out more about the researcher I will have their university website page linked in the description. See you in two weeks for another episode.